Marta, did you uh, have a second question? Did you, you no, said, just have Patty Cab Hot Goss, but we can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, it's a fascinating, the, the inside baseball of Petty Cab politics is fascinating. <laughs> uh, yeah, Petty Cabs are an intense subject in this town. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, COVID cases are way up at schools with the rise of the Omicron variant, prompting some schools to go to remote learning again. And the district has announced closures of some schools in its effort to right-size the system. The New Orleans City Council will vote on a permanent pedicab business limit, despite objections from a newly formed company seeking to operate in the city. A class action lawsuit filed on behalf of prisoners at David Wade Correctional Center, a Louisiana State Prison, claims the facility doesn't provide adequate mental health care and keeps people with mental illness in solitary confinement for months or even years on end. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastles here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Morning. Marta, up first in schools, of course, we should have predicted that schools, uh, as they came back in session, the Omicron variant is roaring into our midst. Schools are having to shut down. What's happening? Yeah, so we're, we're really seeing a mix across the um, city. Um, obviously, schools are, we know that in-person learning is best for students, but schools are dealing with this unprecedented levels of COVID that we have. Um, we're over 1,000 cases a day right now in the city, and which has just shattered previous records. Um, so what we did see coming back, school started on Monday after a two-week break. We had a handful of schools that said, you know what, we're going to go remote right off the bat. Um, another few schools that pushed back a few days so all their students could be tested. And then we also had a couple of schools that, you know, just started on Monday and said, we're going to we're going to get into it. And we're going to test during the week. And we're going to see how this goes. So really kind of a mixed bag, which you expect to see in a decentralized district like we have, because each charter gets to make its own decision on how they want to handle that. Right. How are parents and teachers responding to these to this news? I think that that's also a mixed bag. You know, parents, some parents are happy to have their kids back in school. Other parents are you know, crying foul and saying, look at these numbers that we have. Can we just hold off a little bit until this wave has passed? Same for teachers. I think I have talked to a lot of teachers who are just concerned about their safety in the classroom. They don't not in the classroom, but you know, these, these numbers are unprecedented. And what we have seen recently, um, Catherine O'Neill, um, a health director at Our Lady of the Lake Hospital has said that this is the fastest they've ever seen um, COVID numbers in children increase in this wave. So, you know, I think that is a real concern for teachers and parents. How are they dealing with testing and vaccination on site? Testing is usually available once a week at each school um, or most schools. And um, vaccinations are available at different um, setup sites throughout the city. There is a requirement that the district is, that's going to go into place on February 1st that all students five and up must have their two shots by then. Okay. Um, and that's something in line with uh, what the city is also doing, which is requiring um, right now a first shot and after February one, a second shot for children to also you know, get into restaurants and other um, indoor businesses. Right, and wasn't there also an announcement about boosters for the older kids now? Yep, yep, you're right. That was just approved this week or recommended this week that children 12 and older are also eligible for the Pfizer booster um, five months after their uh, second shot. Okay. 
we, we did get an update on cases from the district this week, which we were not expecting. So some nice news to have. They're tracking 136 active cases um, that were reported between in the last five days of the year. But what I wanted to note is that, you know, I think this is, might be much lower than the actual numbers that are out there. We don't have any of that testing data from these, you know, last uh, four or five days that schools were doing. And at one school in particular, I know on the current um, tracking data from the district says they have 15 cases. And what has come out from a, a staff email that was sent to parents is that there are over 150 cases that have been reported recently. And that in the single school? It's a couple schools, but yes. Wow. Those so um, yeah. number differential is, is, is very striking. So, yeah, I mean, the other thing, and you kind of touched on this, is that, you know, as I think a lot of us experienced, um, you know, either either as parents with children or just people trying to get tests in the last, you know, couple days uh, before January 3rd, um, you know, was there, there was this huge scramble for, for tests all around the city uh, with kids going back to school. Uh, and um, it seems like when that data comes in, from from that huge influx of, of testing around the city that we saw, um, that it's it's bound to be much higher in, in subsequent reports. Right, and, and like you mentioned, that we just saw that at one district yesterday, um, Algiers Charter on late Wednesday afternoon announced that they were gonna go remote uh, for basically the next two and a half weeks until um, January 24th for the safety of their staff and students because of the health data that they're seeing. Okay, and as we discussed before this, Christmas break or the holiday break, the New Orleans School District had announced that they were trying to right size. They were going to be right sizing the system district wide, and were you were expecting some closures to be announced. And in fact, that has indeed started to happen. What schools have been uh, so far announced that they're closing? Right. So um, First Lines Live Oak announced that it would be closing at the end of the school year, as did um, Idea Charter School Network's Oscar Dunn campus. Um, and what's really interesting about right sizing in an all charter district is that it's not exactly up to the district. Um, it's kind of, you know, the district asking charter schools to step up and say, hey, can you consolidate or close? Because mm -hmm. the district does have the power to shut down schools, but not for being under enrolled necessarily. Um, and, and that's what the, the big reason cited at both Live Oak and Oscar Dunn was under enrollment and, you know, schools here are funded on a per pupil basis and so when you're under enrolled that can really put a strain on your budget and the first things that are going to be cut are you know arts and extracurriculars and um both ceos of those schools said that they didn't want to run an under enrolled school because they wouldn't be able to provide the full range of services that they want to provide they have certain fixed costs right Re regardless of uh enrollment like, especially if they're if they're maintaining their own building and also you know you can only cut staff so much before the, you know the, the teacher student ratio gets completely out of control um so you know they they have they have a certain level of operating costs regardless of how many students they have can i ask you marta were these schools a were they near the end of their contracts and b if so were they uh in danger of being closed due to academic performance at the end of their contracts so oscar dunn has never received a letter grade because of covid um but they were slated i believe to receive i can't remember if it's an f or a d it was a d or an f um, based on that, those simulated scores that were put out. They've only been around for three years, so they would have had two years left on their contract. Um, 
But with that score, it's very possible they would have not gotten a contract extension, which would have come up in December. Right. And for Live Oak, um, it's a similar timeline. I think they would have been up for renewal this year, if not the next year. Um, and they also did not have a passing grade. Okay. So, so yeah, as of as of next December, that these schools would likely have been on the, the district chopping block anyway. Right, right. So th I think that's definitely part of the calculation here. Um, and they both saw significant enrollment declines. Um, right. Live Oak from, you know, 450 something to 315. And that's a sizable drop when you're thinking about this budget. Right. And well, and that, and it also, I, I mean, I guess it stands to reason the high performing school is not going to have an enrollment problem. Right, exactly. So I, I, we are actually seeing the, the charter choice and demand system kind of play out here a little bit. Okay, so this prompts a scramble for all those families that are affected. What about the staff? You you suggest in the school in your story that the staff goes and they have other schools that'll welcome them, presumably because their other schools are going to have increased enrollment, so they're going to need more staff. I think that's kind of the line of thinking. I mean, what First Line said specifically was that they would be able to offer jobs to their staff at their other network schools, but in the case of Oscar Dunn, it's a single site school. Uh, so, you know, I don't think they can make any promises for their staff. They can try to work with other schools to get them hired. But um, I, I imagine that was a much, that's a tough blow for staff at both schools. Absolutely. But, you know, I think staff at Oscar Dunn don't necessarily have a safety net like first line mm. staff might. Okay. And finally, do you expect any more announcements of closures? Right. So we have, we do know, you know, Live Oak and Oscar Dunn are going to close. Um, and, and when I, think about more closures potentially coming it's you know the district is worried about this 3,000 seat gap um, and with those two schools closing in addition we also have two other schools that were closing um, Singleton and Arias Academy that did not have their charters renewed um, but even with those four schools combined that's only about 1,200 students um, so you're not even kind of halfway hitting that mark that the district is um, you know concerned about so I'd Maybe we see one or two more closures. I think any more than that would be a surprise, but um, it looks like we do still have a little ways to go to hit that mark. And we haven't seen any movement in the upper grade levels or anything from high school. So, you know, that might be something that's coming later. But it will be quick, you think, because the deadline. Yes, absolutely. If there's any more moves this year, it, it has to be made in the next two weeks before the January, January 21st enrollment deadline. Yep. All right, thanks, Marta. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Uh, Michael. The New Orleans City Council is considering changes to the law on pedicabs, which operate in and around the quarter, that would limit the number of permits for the service. There's a newly formed pedicab cooperative that's upset about this idea. What are they proposing and what's the background of all of this? 
Yeah, so, so what we're talking about is, you know, each pedicab that's out on the street has to have an individual permit attached to it. It's kind of similar if you've heard of like taxi cab medallions that you need in order to operate a taxi. It's, it's a very similar system. And basically the proposal on the table would limit, would create a permanent cap on the number of those permits, um, which would sustain the current level, which is 45. There are currently three companies that operate in the city each of which has 15 of these permits. And when we talk about this, there's kind of like two perspectives that I think are important to keep in mind. I think the first perspective is from the city's perspective, they want to control how many of these are out on the street. So, so in by one perspective, this is a question of how many pedicabs do you want in New Orleans, you know, that are gonna be concentrated in the French Quarter? You know, do you want 300 of these things with nowhere to park and, and you know, no customers for it, or do we want to keep that at a lower level where, you know, we think the market can can accept it? You know, the second perspective is that without any more permits, these three companies that that currently control all of the permits won't have to face any more competition. And we'll be able to solidify this market control that they've had for 10 years. Um, and so, you know, why that's significant is that unlike a lot of industries, you know, this is one similar to taxi cabs where like the government creates a very strict barrier to entry. And so, you know, again, when you have governments that are this involved, you know, in, in an industry and controlling who can enter it and who can participate, um, that's always a reason to pay attention. So yeah, the proposal on the table would basically, you know, again, cement the market control that these three companies have. Um, uh, Councilwoman Kristen Palmer, um, who's sponsoring the ordinance, um, kind of as a compromise measure, she's put in, um, she's offered an amendment that basically, you know, will encourage the city to take on a market study that would potentially lead to more permits. Um, however, um, the amendment stipulates that that can't happen for at least two years. Um, the idea behind that is to let you know the, the tourism industry recover from COVID-19 fully so they can get a better idea. Um, but the result will be that for at least another two years, um, these three you know pedicab companies uh, will not be facing any competition if this is passed by the full city council. They had 10 years of the pre-COVID tourism economy to do such a market analysis and it never happened. Right. And explain how the, the pilot number, there was an initial number which was set low and and but that just kind of got grandfathered in somehow explain all that yeah so so this starts about you know a little over 10 years ago um the pedicabs are first allowed on the streets you know the first ones you know actually start operating in 2011 um and the initial legislation um allowed for a maximum of 65 permits so 20 more than have been issued today um however the legislation also created a pilot uh, period for the for this you know the new program um, that that only allowed 45. So the idea was okay, we'll allow 45 initially. We'll see how that goes, um, and then you know we'll, we'll either raise it to this higher cap of 65, or you know if it's a total mess, we will not. Um, that pilot period was only supposed to last for two years, um, but that pilot period is still in effect today, which is why that 45 um, permit limit still exists. Now. Understanding exactly why that pilot program is still in effect today is a little bit convoluted, but you know, it, basically, you know, after the first two years of the pilot period, um, you know, Mitch Landrieu, our former mayor, Mitch Landrieu's administration, came to the city council, said, "Listen, the pedicab program is going great. Um, seems like a positive addition to the economy, to the neighborhood. 
Um, and you know, not only do we think the permit should be increased to 65, we actually want to take it further and think it should be increased to 75. Now, the city council has never acted on that. So you know, in 2013, they held two meetings where the administration made its case for why that should happen. Um, you know, there was some pushback from the council um, and, and notably the, the, the three companies that had been able to get permits um, you know, very vehemently argued that, you know, the market could not sustain even a single more permit or, you know, it would turn to a mess. You have those two meetings in 13 where the council takes no action. And then what you see after that is the council passing a series of extensions, um, seven extensions on the pilot period overall. So, you know, each of these extensions is uh, extending the pilot period by a few months, uh, six months, a year. And then the last extension they do basically just creates this, this indefinite pilot period that continues until the council votes to end it. Um, so that's basically where we've been. You know, I, Councilwoman Palmer, she, she had written the original ordinance to allow these to happen. According to her, um, she kind of had no idea that we were still in the pilot program. Um, and kind of what brought this to everyone's attention, you know, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, um, is that there's this newly formed pedicab company that you know, wants to, you know, at least states that they want to work as like a workers cooperative that has, you know, more, um, you know, fair practices towards, you know, the actual bike drivers. And, you know, they've been kind of attempting for the last year or so to get some of these permits. And that seems to have brought this back on the radar. Now the response seems to be, you know, from Councilwoman Palmer to solidify that cap at 45 instead of raising it, you know, at all. Let's address Councilwoman Palmer for a moment here. Because she says she wasn't aware of the pilot, that the pilot program was still in effect, but presumably she's been part of the vote to extend it, right? If they voted seven times. She's been sponsoring it. The last one was, I think, technically a by request, but it was still her name on it. Yeah. So that, that seems a little strange. Secondly, um, secondly, she, you found that, that she has received some political contributions, including uh, the donation of office space for her last uh her last unsuccessful campaign from people connected to these companies, the companies that already have these permits, right? Yeah, yeah, we did find some donations, and I think probably the most significant one was uh, uh, what appears to be her campaign headquarters space was donated by one of the owners of, of one of these pedicab companies. But yeah, we found you know um, thousands of dollars in the past few years of donations from these owners. But yeah, so you know again, this this you know newly formed cooperative, some of these. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of public comment, and so a lot of these kind of um, the, the pedicab drivers, both current and former, kind of um, you know accused Palmer of of, uh, of kind of doing a favor for some of her big campaign donors here. And the third thing to note um, is that she's she's doing it at a time. It is it's Thursday right now. Um, this will publish on Friday, uh, but you know we have a council meeting starting in a half an hour. It'll be it, it, and and it'll be the the last full council meeting that uh, that Kristen Palmer will be part of. So she's she's doing this and she's not going to have to live with it, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's another big complaint. You know, it's a lame duck session of city council um, on, you know, I believe sometime next week, you know, five out of seven of the current council members are going to be replaced, including Councilwoman Palmer. Um, so the timing is definitely, you know, another issue here. Um, for sure, um, you know. Again, and this is basically the last, the last thing Palmer will do before leaving office. So, as far as you know, and again, it's a half. It's a, we have a half hour until this council meeting starts today. Are they really planning on going ahead with this today? 
Palmer's office says it's going to go ahead today. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think that, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because you're going to have two council members, including Council President Helena Moreno, who, you know, are going to remain on the council and are, are you know, like you said, are going to have to deal with any fallout that, that comes from this. So we'll see if Palmer can get the rest of the council on board to vote on it. But her office intends to push this forward today. Permit-wise, do these three companies have the permits split equally? And then is there like an annual renewal process or do you just hold the permits indefinitely? Yeah, so each has 15, so split evenly, um, and there is a renewal, yeah. Yeah, you have to renew it every year, but, you know, if you choose to renew it, you get it automatically. Tell us about the new company. Are they, Is it a bunch of people who, who, ex, who are laborers, if you will, for existing companies that are coming together to form a new company? Yeah, so th- this new pedicab company has formed. They have been, you know, uh, authorized as a pedicab operator in the city. Um, they're called Bourbon Street Bike Taxi. And yeah, so the, the roadblock they've hit is trying to get these permits. And, and the significance of them trying to break into the industry is, is kind of, is multifold. But, you know, for our purposes, the biggest, you know, kind of reason why this is central to the story is that their attempts to break into the industry seem to have, you know, jump-started this effort to um, permanently, you know, keep the cap at 45. It, it seems to what, um, you know, has pushed Palmer to introduce this. Um, so, you know, again, that's kind of their, their central significance here. But, you know, I, if you look at their website, you know, I talked to some of the organizers behind it. The idea is basically um, to create a workers cooperative that can kind of change some of what they see as unethical, you know, labor practices within, you know, th- this, this industry. And so, you know, I think one of the main ones is, you know, um, classifying people as independent contractors instead of employees, common uh, uh, labor practice that people take issue with. Another one is that, you know, in, in order to take on a shift um, with one of these companies, you have to pay rent in order to take the bike out. Um, and, you know, the complaint that I've heard is that, you know, the, the amount that a driver can charge a customer is pretty strictly regulated by the city. You know, the exact price of a ride is laid out. Right. However, there is no control over what these companies can charge their drivers to rent a bike. And, you know, I also heard complaints about, you know, having to take on worse shifts where you know you're not going to make enough to really, you know, pay the rent and make a profit in order to get some of like the better shifts during Mardi Gras on the weekends mm. and stuff. And so... Like any industry, there seem to be labor complaints. Um, and, you know, I, this company has actually made some you know, significant strides in order, you know, in terms of breaking into the industry. But they're, you know, they're obviously hitting a brick wall with these permits. Um, and, you know, they see this as a, a pretty blatant attempt to, you know, shut down their effort to, to break into the industry. Um, you know, they, they believe that if they were able to, they would be able to attract a significant, a significant amount of riders, especially the longer term ones. Um, which, you know, obviously is not great news to existing operators. I mean, you know, a- any company breaking in would not be good for these operators. But, um, you know, again, they see this as Palmer kind of interceding and, and, you know, shutting down their attempts in favor of her campaign donors. Okay. It's a fun story. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Nick, a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of prisoners at David Wade Correctional Center, a Louisiana state prison, claims the facility doesn't provide adequate mental health care and keeps people with mental illness in solitary confinement for months or even years on end. What are some of the allegations made in this lawsuit? So yeah, this lawsuit was filed on behalf of people at David Wade Correctional Center in Northern Louisiana, which is a state prison. And it's frequently used to, to hold people who have been accused of, of 
disciplinary charges um, at other prisons. So, so oftentimes prisoners are, are sent to David Wade uh, to serve out a disciplinary sentence. And what that means is that they're, they're held in something called restrictive housing, which is a solitary confinement, essentially um, held in cells themselves for 23 hours a day uh, with, you know, little to no interaction with other prisoners and, and stripped of most of their belongings. Um, what the lawsuit alleges is that, that these prisoners are not adequately screened for mental illness um, before they're being placed in, in solitary confinement, and that once they're placed there, they're, they're not given any treatment um, to adequately deal with what might be their pre-existing mental illnesses, and the conditions of confinement are so extreme that, that people will develop mental illnesses just by being placed there. So that, that's sort of the, the core allegation of the lawsuit is that, that these conditions and the failure of the prison to treat mental illness or to adequately screen for mental illness is a violation of, of their constitutional rights. It was brought back in 2018, so this has been playing out for a long time um, and is just getting set to go to trial on Monday. So um, it's, it's been a long process. So what happens next week? Uh, next week, the, the, the trial will begin. So the, the trial is scheduled for four weeks, which is, you know, a long time. The plaintiffs will have 70 hours of testimony. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that, all that will include, but I think we'll hear from a lot of people who are who were either formerly or are currently incarcerated at David Wade and likely are, you know, being held in solitary confinement or were held in solitary confinement. You know, a lot of these stories that are contained in the, in the you know, written filings in the lawsuit are really difficult to read. You know, a lot of descriptions of, of, of prisoners harming themselves, um, you know, going through pretty serious mental deterioration. What the lawsuit alleges is that, is that in response to these symptoms of, of mental illness while prisoners are being held in, in solitary confinement, the, the response has been to, to place them on suicide watch. And what suicide watch is, there's two types um, at David Wade. There's standard suicide watch and then there's extreme suicide watch. And in, in both cases, uh, prisoners have, are stripped of all their clothing, um, of all their belongings, and placed in a cell in a paper gown with, with no mattress, no shoes, so that they're essentially, you know, in a, in a concrete room uh, with with nothing else, and so that that standard watch and um, extreme watch, they will be placed, but also placed in restraints. And you know that the lawsuit argues that these conditions they're being used punitively. So rather than you know attempting to to give get these uh, prisoners any sort of treatment or counseling or, or therapy, that they they are using this. Um, to actually punish prisoners for, for self-harm. Also, I should say, well, while, while prisoners are on suicide watch, they're also still frequently given more disciplinary write-ups. There are you know, many instances where people where prisoners on suicide watch are, are maced or sprayed with chemical agents. And you know, this, is, this is sort of the cycle that, that the prison is, a, is a, or that the lawsuit is alleging that the prison engages in. It just allow, allows prisoners to decompensate and continues to, to find them, you know, find disciplinary infractions and punish them further. So let me ask you, Nick, about David Wade. I mean, you've done a lot of writing about David Wade, especially over the last year. There was a hunger strike. 
um, with prisoners who had been transferred there from other prisons uh, as a form of punishment, were only supposed to stay there for a few weeks or a month or two, and ended up being there for more than a year. Um, most, many of them in long-term segregation. You had uh, you had a, another recent story that, that uh, we uh, partnered with The Intercept on that, that dealt a lot with David Wade as part of this pattern of, of uh, the use of, of solitary or you know disciplinary segregation or whatever they want to call it. Um, do you know like how widespread is the is the use of solitary confinement in David Wade and? How do, and and how does the, the the system, which you know, which has has at least paid lip service to wanting to reduce solitary confinement, how do they justify that? Yeah, I mean, I think that they would argue that you know, I don't have the numbers offhand of how many people are in solitary now versus how many were. I think there's still several hundred people in solitary confinement at David Wade. But, you know, the, the prison is. It has implemented this new disciplinary matrix that's supposed to limit the, the amount of time that people spend in solitary confinement. But there are these ways around it. I mean, one is that they will just ignore the number of days that someone has, has been sentenced to and leave them there. Um, they usually claim it's because there's lack of bed space in, in other parts of the prison. But then there's also something called uh, uh, preventative segregation which is when you keep someone in solitary confinement, not in response to, to a specific disciplinary uh, infraction, but when you've just deemed that they are not safe to, to be in the general population. And so, you know, through preventative segregation, people can remain uh, in solitary confinement for years. Um, and I think, you know, in a recent filing, the Department of Corrections said, we don't do this very frequently. They said, I think they said right now, there are only six people who have been in solitary confinement in David Wade for, for several years. So, you know, is that less than, than maybe they were doing previously? Possibly, but it's still, I think, it is objectionable for, you know, obviously for, for the civil rights attorneys who brought the suit. Um, and during this trial, we're going to see, you know, the Department of Corrections sort of, you know, make their case that, that they have done you know, enough or, or, or as much as they can to reduce it and, and that the, the degree to which they're, they're, they're using it now is strictly what is required to, to keep the, the um, prison safe. Um, so we'll see how compelling that case is and I, I think, you know, it, it should be interesting. Well, yeah, and, and, and so we've heard this from the DOC before that, um, you know, a lot of these people, you know, that you've written about their, you know, their chronic disciplinary problems. And it seems like the counter argument that's coming from the plaintiffs here is you're saying people are dangerous based on their disciplinary records, but their disciplinary records are not actually reflective of a dangerous person. It's, it's, it's showing a person who is in mental distress. Right. Yeah, that's well articulated. And, you know, not only that, but what the it, it argues that that if someone is left in you know solitary confinement for several weeks or months after their disciplinary sanction was supposed to be up and they have no further write-ups and you know this it starts to drag on for for weeks and months and months they start to lose any hope that you know keeping a clean disciplinary record does anything for them um and you know they might eventually get another write-up um which then the prison can use to justify keeping them you know mm in segregation longer, you know, and then 
you know, as you said, the a lot of these write-ups, I think, can be, you know, attributed to to mental illness and to um, symptoms of, of being held in solitary confinement for, for extended periods of time. Yeah, yeah. So what, what sort of remedy are they seeking? Are they looking for, like, a consent decree or something like that? Yeah, so the first part of the trial is four weeks, actually, won't deal with that at all. This is just to determine whether or not there are constitutional violations. Right. Um, and so the remedy phase, if it is determined that, that there's a violation, will come, I think, uh, in a few months. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, they're not asking for, for any monetary damages. So really they're asking the court to step in and, you know, force the prison to, to change its policies and procedures and provide adequate uh, care and, and uh, improve the conditions. And I don't know what that'll look like, and it sounds like, um, you know, the plaintiffs don't either yet. Um, I think it could come in the form of some sort of monitor, um, some sort of regular oversight, and, you know, whatever the court does decide will then, the plaintiffs will have, if the plaintiffs feel that the prison is not applying, they'll have the opportunity to go back to the court and, and you know, ask for uh, the, the person to be held in contempt or um, or for, you know, further enforcement to, to take place. Mm-hmm. And that starts next week. You'll be following it for us? Yeah, definitely. Okay, thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Karen. All right, you guys, stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Talk yeah, to you next thanks. week. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>